Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved. You're inspired, you're inerrant, you're infallible, and you're all-sufficient Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark that has been breathed out by God, that is profitable to us for teaching, for doctrine, for correction, for training in righteousness. We are excited for that. Our love and thanks, as always, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. Beloved, as we open our Bibles, let us read them, as A.W. Tozer said, quote, with the thought that God means exactly what he says. What a noble concept. Well, to that end, I received a number of questions uh, from our church family over the last few weeks about something of a a controversial statement made by a a very well-known and historically very faithful pastor recently concerning a a hot-button question in the realm of sexuality, weddings, and marriage. While we don't address from the pulpit every wave and breeze that blows in evangelical circles, but we do take note, we take caution, and we use these as opportunities to remind ourselves of what we know to be true. That we open our Bibles, we read our Bibles with the presupposition, the understanding that God spoke plainly, clearly, and in a manner to be understood. And that is the core battlefield, isn't it? That God has meant what he has spoken, and it is to be clearly understood. In fact, we could not even get past Genesis 3.1 before that concept was challenged. Before the question was raised by Satan himself, hath God really said? As we see the clear teaching of Scripture violated in some circles of evangelicalism today, matters which are blazingly clear, abundantly clear, the lie of the serpent remains. Hath God really said? Well, yes. Yes, he hath said. He has spoke clearly in his word. You know, as I sit to exposit the text and to write our sermon each week, I'm reminded of what we call the seven-year-old hermeneutic. That's the idea that God wrote Scripture so simply that in most cases, a seven-year-old living in that time and context could understand what was written, implying that we are without excuse for what God hath said. And so many of these areas of controversy within the church in America, and in nearly every case, Scripture is clear, clear, clear. Gender roles in ministry, Scripture is clear. Homosexuality, beloved, transgenderism, heterosexual intimacy outside of marriage, it needs to be said. Scripture is clear. This has nothing to do with the value of a person. Or if we love that person, we love people with every fiber of our being as fellow image bearers of God. Yet scripture is clear. On marriage, scripture is clear. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Scripture is clear. Marriage is God's institution. It's his. So that means he gets to define what it is, how it's to be conducted, who may participate, and under what circumstances they might participate, and what Christians and how Christians are to respond when the world pushes back on that truth. But hath God really said? 
these historical positions are now somehow couched as culture warrior statements or political statements. No, these are God's statements. The serpent opened his forked tongue in Genesis 3, and he hasn't closed it since. Hath God said? Yes, he hath said. And it matters not what way the culture shifts or moves. If words are getting people or pulpits sent to jail, ah, then we're finally getting back to normality in history. Beloved, either we will view the world through the lens of Scripture or we will view Scripture through the lens of the world. Either we will sit in judgment over the Scriptures or we will allow Scripture to sit in judgment over us. The question of old, hath God really said? Did Satan not chide Eve? You're smart, independent person. You decide. You sit in judgment. You mull it over. Hath God really said? Is that really what he meant? God meant what he said. A seven-year-old can understand it. And before our sin nature creeps in to twist those scriptures to our own lusts, we know that. Beloved, we must read the scripture with simplicity and with clarity. It will say what it will say. And as we understand it, we'll either accept it or we'll reject it. Or the most common response, we'll twist it. Satan chose option three in the garden. He is a twister. Therefore, be on your guard, beloved of God. Commit to taking God at his word. And if it grates against your views or your sensitivities, good. Let the word do its work. If the word only ever flows over us like smooth honey all the time, and it never burns a little going down, we're missing something somewhere. The strategy of the enemy has not changed. And it goes to the root of every false argument and every sinister position. Hath God really said, they ask. Is that really what he meant? Well, you know, pastor, we live in different times now, some say. They didn't, they didn't know then what we know now. Hath God really said? Why are professing Christians doing the devil's job for him with great effectiveness, bringing doubt and bringing a misty fog where Scripture radiates with beautiful clarity. And Jesus' response to this tactic, Jesus' response to the, the lie of old from the garden was simple when he was tempted in the wilderness, wasn't it? Hath God really said? Did God really say? And Jesus' response, it is written, it is written, it is written. So let that be our answer. Let that be our answer. And in order to give that answer, we have to know what is written, don't we? So therefore, we gather as the people of God this morning that we might be able to prove what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God, that we may know what God hath said, and we may demonstrate in compassionate conviction and in loving truth that it is written. Amen? Amen. Last week, we rejoined our journey through Mark. Having completed the three religious trials of Jesus, we embarked upon the three secular show trials of our Lord that, of course, would end and would culminate in the sentence of death. We watched as the sovereignty of God has wielded the wickedness of men to accomplish his divine purpose. 
We've witnessed throughout the passion narrative God allowing that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. And we are instructed by that truth. We draw comfort through the knowledge of that. Last week, as we began Jesus' third and final secular trial, having been delivered back to Pilate from Herod, remember that happened between verses 5 and 6, we titled that message, The Only Question. And there we got to learn a fun new phrase, didn't we, in Latin? Census plenier. Census plenier. Latin for meaning fuller sense or deeper meaning. Much like Caiaphas in John 11, Pilate spoke census plenier. Pilate had unwittingly schemed and stumbled into offering the greatest question that will ever be posed. The answer to which will reflect the eternal fate of every man. Speaking greater than he knew in verse 12, Pilate asked, what will I do with this man called Christ? The only question that has been planted and cultivated and tilled throughout redemptive history, now springing forth from the ground in due season. It is the question that every groan of creation has pointed toward. Since Genesis 3 and the fall of man, what will we do with this man called Christ? With eternity hanging in the balance. We looked last week, beginning at verse 6, to the person of Barabbas, a murderer, a thief, and an insurrectionist. Being infamous, being notorious, Barabbas was on the death docket. He was due to be executed. In fact, it's likely that the cross given to Jesus was likely already made and fashioned for this man, Barabbas. As well, we look to Pontius Pilate, did we not? Being the political animal that he was, we've already, we already did a deep dive into Pilate and who he was, his past, his personality, and really the thin ice that he skated on, not only with the Jews, but with Caesar and Rome. He had presided over three riots already to this point. One more could cost Pilate his life. Thus, he was a man who was set up for blackmail. And the chief priests were all too aware of this. But still, Pilate had tried every possible way to free Jesus. A man he had declared three times that he finds no guilt in. That Herod had declared he found no guilt in. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows Jesus is no threat to Rome. Jesus has told him that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. There's no army coming. But this Passover tradition of freeing one prisoner provides yet another possible way out for Pilate. By offering up a prisoner, I can, I can free Jesus. I can curry favor with the people. Justice will be upheld and my political hide will stay intact. What a plan. We've only got two prisoners on the death docket. One's this Jesus fellow and the other's a violent criminal. One the crowd had just gathered by the thousands waving palm branches for. And the other is a tried and convicted murderer and thief. Well, as we piece together this final trial of Jesus, weaving together Matthew, Luke's, and John's accounts, you'll also notice that we watched an incredible scene of providential circumstance transpire that would be instrumental in Jesus' sentence. As the sun had started to rise now, we're well into around the 6.30 a.m. time frame by this point in our text, which means that the crowd has started to gather at the praetorium, and word is spreading very fast. Now, by now, the crowd will have vastly outnumbered the 71 members of the Sanhedrin who originally walked Jesus, right, for that short distance from the temple 
to the Antonia Fortress, to the Praetorium, with Pilate sitting above them in what was known as the judgment seat, this crowd has all gathered below him. And as these exchanges are happening, timeline-wise, between verses 10 and 11 last week, Pilate received a message, didn't he? It was from his wife. And she said, I've had a dream about this man. I'm terribly vexed over it. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. We were reminded that this was nothing short of divine providence. When Pilate's wife, or the report from Pilate's wife, comes, because it distracted Pilate, right, causing him to either look away or even to get up and, and walk to the side of the judgment seat to address his wife. And that opens up a golden opportunity for the Sanhedrin. We saw in verse 11 that the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And of course, that raised two immediate questions, right, which we needed to explore if we were to, to capture this scene. First, how did the Sanhedrin do this physically? I mean, what did they do? And secondly, what did they say? How do 71 religious leaders convince a crowd of likely over 1,000 at this point to ask for Barabbas. With Pilate being distracted, likely only for a very short amount of time, perhaps as little as a minute, how did they pull it off? How do you get a crowd that's favorable or at least curious toward Jesus as a miracle worker and a Messiah candidate to flip and ask for an insurrectionist? 30 seconds, one minute. Pilate's distracted. How do you do it? What do you say? Well, the first answer is that Scripture doesn't tell us directly what they said or how they did it. But if we take in the totality of the Gospels, what they knew and what they thought about and who they thought Messiah would be, we could take a very close guess to the essence of how they flipped that crowd in a minute. As we reviewed last week, the answer begins with Jesus receiving on his with the pleading Jesus receiving on his arrival into Jerusalem on what? On a donkey, right? And what pleading did they hear? Hoshiana. Hoshiana, not a word of praise, Hosanna, as we so often misinterpret it. But translated meaning save us, rescue us. It's a desperate cry for someone who's drowning for a life preserver. Messiah, save us. Meaning what? Save us from our sins? Save us from death and hell? Of course not. They mean save us from the Romans, from our tyrannical occupiers and overlords. We know well that that was the expectation of the Jewish people for Messiah. He was a military Messiah. He was to be a conquering Messiah. He was to come and throw off the shackles of Rome, restore Israel to freedom, and reign over her as king. And it's Passover. Population has swelled in Jerusalem. The time to strike is now. This was not a fringe view. This was mainstream. Jesus had to remind the disciples a hundred times throughout the Gospels that this military take-over-the-world vision was not why he came. Even after Jesus would tell them plainly, time and again, they would keep coming back to it, wouldn't they? They would keep coming back to it. There was a lifetime of deprogramming that Jesus had to do with his disciples. And Passover itself was, it was a hotbed of messianic fervor. I mean, it, it wasn't just a casual topic of conversation around the matzo balls, right? 
Ancient Jews were continually on the lookout for Messiah. Could it be this guy? Hey, could it be that guy? Hey, there's a guy up there. Let's go listen to him. Constantly looking. When will Messiah come and deliver us from our Roman oppressors? And that was the entire reason for the triumphal entry. We celebrate it as a, a good thing. When the heart of the triumphal entry, the heart of Hoshiana, is really quite tragic. They missed the true king completely. They missed why he came completely. And now it's been four days since Jesus rode in. Has Jesus delivered on their misconceptions of overthrowing Rome? No. In fact, what's happened? Just the opposite. Recall from last week, not only has Jesus not toppled Rome, not only has he not walked in and lobbed off Pilate's head, but the very representative of Rome himself has said three times that Jesus is innocent, that he's not even a dangerous man, that he's done nothing wrong. If he was your idea of a Messiah, Rome would be terrified of you. You would be their death sentence, not someone that they find no threat in at all. So we explored how all this went down with Pilate being distracted with his wife and some back of the kind of some back of the napkin math told us that with about 71 members of the Sanhedrin and about a thousand people in the crowd. If each huddles around them, oh, say 15 people or so, everyone's covered now in that thousand people crowd. So the how is actually pretty easy. All 1000. And what did they say? What did they say? 30 seconds to flip a crowd. As they gather around quickly, a member of the Sanhedrin could simply say this. Hey, listen to me. And the people would listen, wouldn't they? They're the religious authority. They've got the big hat on. They're going to listen to them. Okay? And what could they say? You've heard from Pilate from his own mouth that Jesus is no threat. No Jewish Messiah is a friend of Rome. He's to overthrow Rome, not be called blameless by Rome. And don't take our word for it. You've heard it from Pilate himself. They are not scared of him. This cannot be Messiah. If you want an insurrection, if you want to overthrow Rome, then give us the insurrectionist. Ask for Barabbas. So with the uh, Jewish idea, would the Jewish idea of, of Messiah be one that is found blameless and harmless by Rome? No, it's the opposite. Their Messiah meant the death of Pontius Pilate, the death of King Herod, not finding him harmless. All the Sanhedrin had to do was point this out to the crowd. You want an insurrection, ask for the insurrectionist. Isn't it deeply ironic and sad that Barabbas more closely represents the military Messiah they desired than the Jesus that was in their midst. Give us Barabbas. Of course, the irony there being that it was Pilate's defense of Jesus that was all the ammunition the chief priests need. They think Rome would be terrified at the true Messiah. They would be dead before him. Instead, Rome thinks he's a harmless nothing. Pilate's declaration of Jesus' innocence has unwittingly fueled the crowd. And today, as we continue our, our march toward Calvary, we're not only, we're, we're only going to remain engaged with the, the crowd below Pilate, 
But with Pilate having posed the greatest question to the crowd, census plenier, what shall I do with this man called Christ? Well, today we're going to see the crowd's answer. And the question that was asked census plenier in a very real way is about to be answered census plenier as well. That fateful cry of the crowd to crucify him had a far deeper meaning, a far greater implication than to simply kill a man, a far fuller meaning than they knew. And while I considered it making it a separate message as well, given the, the gravity of it, today's text will also bring us to the scourging of Christ. Now we're going to keep this PG for the little ears <laughs> while still needing to capture the reality of what it meant and why it happened in the planning and foreknowledge of God. So we have much to see this morning, loads to look at. So let us look to our text this morning, beloved. Mark 15, 13 through 15. Mark 13, 15 through 15. And they shouted again, crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, why? What evil did he do? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue our march toward Calvary, Lord, every word and every text that draws closer makes us feel that much more unworthy. Lord, unworthy to hear it, unworthy to preach it. But Lord, we are dependent on your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would wield this word. Lord, that it would find its perfect mark. Lord, that you would meet every need that has come here this morning. Lord, that the text is designed to meet and that it will do in perfect holiness. We ask that you would be with us, be with this word as we Explore it as we're changed by it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, in February 2005, three former PayPal employees, they joined their heads together and they created a little website called YouTube. You might have heard of that. And while on the margin, the Internet's been a, a force for great evil in the world, it's also provided really incredible opportunities for, for information and for learning. Anything a believer ever wanted to know or learn about, he can probably be obtained on this information superhighway with websites like YouTube. Well, that YouTube was a, was a particular favorite as tech-savvy believers started seeing the, the gospel potential of it. But my personal favorite pastime is watching street witnessing encounters. One-on-one -on -one witnessing, you know, with believers engaging in apologetics and conversation with those passing by. Of course, this became a sensation with people like James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries, Durban and Apologia Church, their excellent work they do on the streets at the abortion clinics. And of course, people like Ray Comfort and his signature style of sharing the gospel with colorful characters on the street. Well, if you watch enough of these encounters, there's a particular trend that you'll begin to notice among many of these people they share with. Anger. When their worldview is challenged, people get angry. They'll often lash out, screaming at the person sharing with them. There's no discourse, no discussion, just anger. 
They won't answer a question. They won't engage in, in thought provocation. They'll have a mantra, and they'll just repeat that mantra. You often see this at events like pro-abortion rallies where well-intentioned Christians try to engage with the demonstrators, right? Wanting to talk to them, to, to prod them, to articulate and explain their position. 99% of the time, they'll just yell a slogan. This is particularly true in large groups of people where a mob or a herd mentality can take over. Well, it's just such a scene and just such a reaction that we open with this morning. Discourse has broken down. A, a riot mentality is beginning to take hold. There's no articulation, no reasoning, no logic happening anymore. Just a mantra. Just a chant. Crucify him. And we see this straight away in our first verse as we open. Verse 13. Verse 13. And they shouted again, crucify him. Well, as we begin to explore this, really some immediate questions kind of simmer to the top. Okay, methods, methods of execution in, in Jesus' time were, were, were certainly varied. They were all over the place. You had, you had stoning, you had beheading, you had ingesting molten minerals, other imaginative ways that you can think of. They were just about all practiced. But one method was special. <laughs> one method of execution was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was considered such a, a heinous form of death that Roman citizens were actually exempt from it. Women were exempt from it. That, of course, being Roman crucifixion. The most painful, the most humiliating way to take a life. It was public, torturous, dehumanizing, and it often took days upon the cross to accomplish its intended effect. This would always be done in a very public place, very public, because that was the point, wasn't it? Let all see what becomes of those who oppose Rome, of those who would engage in insurrection or crimes against Rome. This was a death not just as punishment, not just to comport with law. This was a death to make a statement, the loudest, most public one that they could make. So that begs the question then, why? <laughs> why are we calling for crucifixion? Ever think about that? Why not jail as a troublemaker? Stoning, perhaps, under Judaic law for blasphemy. Banishment, maybe, in the interest of the public good and peace. No, crucify him. Why? Well, first off, we can't be inside the head of the all 1,000 people there or whatever the number was. But some motivations we are told outright by Scripture what they were. And others we're going to be able to piece together through the, really through the totality of the Gospels what that was. Now, the religious leaders, the, the 71 members of the Sanhedrin, we know the motivation. Scripture tells us back in verse 10 of our chapter that the chief priests had delivered him over because of envy. And we did a deep dive into that last week. But they have hated Jesus at a guttural level for some time now, right? He's called them out in front of their sheep. He destroyed their temple marketplace. People are listening to him. They're taking away influence and prestige and worship that they wanted for themselves. They were jealous, envious. They were murderers of the heart. 
through their hatred. Now they want actual murder. So there's nothing really complicated about the religious leader's call for the most heinous form of execution for Jesus. Their motivations are, are tales as old as time. Now, how about the rest of the crowd? How about them? It is their pulsating fervor that is eventually going to cause Pilate to cave, isn't it? So how do we explain that? We need to understand it. Right? They're not watching this scene as dispassionate observers, right? Saying, well, you know, I think stoning is more appropriate here, given the charges and circumstances. No, this is anger. This is riotous anger. Mob mentality is rising. Why? Again, there's not a, a monolithic or a singular answer to that, but we can piece it together. And it's well that we explore the why of these matters, not simply the what. The Holy Spirit has preserved this for our instruction. Not only that we might know what happened, but we're to know the why. We're to understand the heart motivations that have led a mob to cry out for a murder. Because it's through these understandings that we better understand the human condition. That we grasp the fallenness of man and our helplessness without a savior. So how do we explain this crowd calling for the worst form of death? It would seem that between scripture and certain elements of crowd psychology and human sociology that we can piece together our different groups here. And our first would be represented by our triumphal entry crowd, we'll call them. Call them the TEC. Triumphal entry crowd, right? Those were, there, those were the ones that were there four days ago watching Jesus ride in, waving their palm branches, crying out in hopeful expectation, Hoshiana, save us, rescue us, deliver us. For Jesus, their Messiah, to ride in and crush their occupiers. And as we've reviewed already, Jesus has not done that. Jesus has not fulfilled their vision of Messiah. And the chief priests have likely pointed this out to them. And how do they react? Again, to call for crucifixion. You're either very passionate about the purity of Rome, <laughs> or this is personal. You hate this guy. Well, we can guarantee that it's not the first. So why are they so angry to call for such blood? The answer to that reminded me of an opportunity I was given some time back ago to converse extensively on, on spiritual matters with another coworker of mine. They found out I was a pastor, and when that happens, it's kind of funny. They usually get very weird and very quiet around you, right? They won't start, they won't talk to you all of a sudden. They just disappear, right? Or they want to engage in all kinds of conversations and launch into all kinds of questions, and, well, this one wanted to talk a lot. Great. This person professed to be a believer, a Christian. So I'm always excited about the prospect of some fellowship. But as this person began to share and speak, my ears started to perk up at certain things they were saying, how they viewed God, Jesus, Scripture. I'm certainly not the judge and jury of someone's soul, but Scripture has told us to be diligent fruit inspectors, to examine the fruit of what someone is saying, to examine what they say in light of Scripture, looking to that fruit of someone's life to know whether or not they be in the faith. That's not judgmental. That's scriptural. And so I listened. And I listened some more. 
And it became very clear that the Jesus this person was worshiping was not the Jesus of Scripture. And in a gentle yet truthful way, I shared this with my coworker. The image of Jesus you seem to have does not line up with the Jesus we see revealed in Scripture. Now, I was very kind, very tactful. But what is the predominant reaction when you tell someone who professes to follow Christ that in truth they don't know him at all? You may think he's like this, but Scripture says he's like this. You think he said and did that, but Scripture says the opposite. You seem to reign all over their deeply held personal belief of someone that they have probably even named Jesus. What is the prevailing reaction to that? More often than not, anger. Whether at you or at themselves, anger is what we see. Well, that coworker at the end of the day, <laughs> when we parted ways, wouldn't even shake my hand. They were steaming mad that I would even dare intimate that their Jesus was not the Jesus of Scripture. They had positive daggers in their eyes. Anger. Honestly, I think if we were to meet again, they would turn and walk out. I was as kind as could be, and I'm pretty sure they would have crucified me. No pun intended. The triumphal entry crowd is feeling duped right now. If this Jesus is who he says he is, then either my understanding of Messiah has been all wrong or he lied to us. He accepted our worship as only Messiah should. And now either I'm wrong or he's wrong. I'm going to go with him. They are angry. It's personal. We have to understand the personal thrust behind this, right? What is driving these people to call for the most heinous form of execution that can be done? Beloved, there are few things more personal than the person and work of Messiah to an ancient Jew. Grasp that. And they thought they had him. They might have him. And now they are told that's not Messiah. It can't be. Rome's not scared of him. They said he's innocent. Crucify him. Crucify him. I'm sure there are more people represented in that mob with motivations that we can only surmise, but the two that we know, we must understand and apply this to our own hearts. Say, how do I apply that, Pastor? Crucify him? Calling for the execution of God's son? That's not something I think I'll ever do, thanks. Well, that depends if you're playing church or not this morning. Hebrews 6 is a very famous chapter. It's written to those who were false converts within the church. It was written to those who had merely given intellectual assent to the truths of the gospel. To those who hang around the body for the benefits of it. Those who occupy a pew as a community or a cultural act. I mean, they have the head knowledge. They have the facts. They might even say all the right things. And what does the writer of Hebrews say to such an individual? Hebrews 6.6, 6, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. 
and subjecting him to public disgrace. So, beloved, the sad reality is that the call to crucify him rings out inside every church every Sunday, guaranteed. As long as goats gather with the sheep, it will be so. So how is it that they crucify him anew? Writer of Hebrews. How is it that they call to crucify him anew? Well, the writer of Hebrews said that they do it by making the same mistake the Jews made. They made and worshipped a Messiah that wasn't in Scripture. A military Messiah. Beloved, the Jesus of a false convert will take all shapes and sizes. But mostly, their Jesus will closely resemble the attributes of the person who created him. Apostates will always create a Jesus that looks and acts like them. My Jesus is this. My Jesus is that. My Jesus would never say that. My Jesus would never do that. You make the error, the writer of Hebrews says, of the Jews. You have the mentality that called out for his crucifixion. They want the Jesus of their own making. And they crucify any that don't celebrate their creation. (laughs) Who would have thought that the call to crucify him would later be a warning to false converts in the church? Isn't that interesting? And the crowd continues. Look with me quickly to verse 14. Verse 14. But Pilate was saying to them, why? What evil did he do? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Well, Pilate has a real problem. But his problem is not the crowd. Pilate's problem is Pilate. There have been countless opportunities at this point to squash this and release a clearly innocent man, but Pilate is for Pilate. The whole concept of justice and of law and order, that's real nice, and I do want it, unless it costs me personally. Pilate was a man who would choose self-preservation above all. He was ruled by fear. He was ruled by blackmail. Now, does that mean that his facts were wrong? No. No, one more riot, and he probably was toast at this point. His facts weren't wrong. But Pilate was a pragmatist. He looked for the greater good, the greater good being himself. The question for Pilate was not what is right. The question for Pilate was what works. What works? The crowd was not going to relent. The momentum was at full steam. The Greek tense here tells us that it was continuous and that it was growing. The drum beat drummed, and this crowd would not be satiated. Now at this point, to make sure we've got the the fullest picture of it, why don't we, we're going to weave a portion of Matthew's telling into it. So we we don't miss a, a very grand gesture that's coming. Now looking at Matthew 27, there's no need to turn there if you don't like, I'll read it for you. But Matthew 27, this weaves right into our timeline. We can't miss this. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil did he do? But they were crying out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. Okay, that's where Mark's text takes us to. And Matthew goes on. 
Now when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, oh my, his blood be on us and on our children. Well, there's so much packed into that scene, but two things we, we want to observe very quickly in Matthew's account here. All right, first is that Pilate participated in, in, a, in a, a very Jewish observance in washing his hands. Right? Pilate is speaking their language. This ceremonial washing that's pulled right from Deuteronomy. Right? This, this happens if, if, if ruling elders of a city, if they weren't able to identify the identity of a murderer, that they would go out and they would publicly wash their hands, meaning they're, they're absolving themselves of not being able to render justice upon a murderer. Okay? People kind of still use that saying today, don't we? Right? Don't they? Right? I'm going to wash my hands of this. Same thing. But why do you care about that? Why does that matter to the scene? Because Pilate is announcing his hypocrisy for the entire crowd. <laughs> You're saying he's innocent three times. You're declaring that guilt in the matter cannot be determined. I'm washing my hands of it. And yet you are giving Jesus over to be killed. You could stop it. Rome and Rome only wielded the sword. There may be a riot, but justice will be upheld. Justice does not say, well, you know, your, your guilt can't be determined. We're not sure, so let's kill you. In attempting to absolve himself, Pilate is declaring his hypocrisy. Now, of this Warren Wearsby, he writes, quote, Pilate has gone down in history as the man who tried Jesus Christ, three times declared him not guilty, and yet crucified him just the same, close quote. Of course, a second remarkable event in Matthew's account is essentially the curse that they call down on themselves. Oh, well, to put it mildly, Jewish people would not say something like, his blood be on us and our children lightly. Oaths and words mattered. Ah, but did they speak census plenier, beloved? Did those words carry greater meaning and weight than they realized? Oh, to be sure. Yet when it came time for the guilt of Jesus' blood to be assigned, not only by Peter and his sermon at Pentecost, we remember that, but as the apostles went about in the book of Acts, what is the same religious leadership that was there at that day, say in Acts 5.28, when the apostles were on trial again. Listen to this. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Well, you don't say. You don't say. You insisted that his blood be upon you, and even upon your children. You really would have it no other way. Finally, verse 15, Pilate, revent, Pilate finally relents. Verse 15, and wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over 
to be crucified. Well, perhaps instead of Deuteronomy, Pilate would have done well to pick up the Proverbs. They're reading that the fear of man brings a snare. It brings a snare. The beginning of verse 15, saints, are six words that should never be strung together in the Christian's vocabulary. And wishing to satisfy the crowd. Nothing ever good has ever produced from that fountain. It will rarely, if ever, be the crowd that is spurring you on to godliness. Walking out the Christian life will never satisfy the crowd. It will enrage the crowd. The result of the Christian life lived out will be the crowd crying out for your blood. If the world is applauding you, check your GPS. You've definitely taken a wrong turn. If the world loves you and respects you and thinks you're wise, Pilate has entered the building. You've compromised the truth. You've sacrificed what you know to be right for the satiation of the crowd. We should expect to be treated as our master was treated. Full stop. The Christian life is not driven by results. It's driven by obedience. The results are God's. The obedience is ours. The Christian life is driven to please our Heavenly Father. Not a fickle and vacillating and wicked crowd. How tiring, how tiresome and weary it must be trying to please everyone. How exhausting being a crowd pleaser. What if? What if you only needed to please one? How freeing might that be? His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Striving to please only one instead of all. The crowd, sin, is a hard taskmaster. It is unforgiving. It is relentless. It is much harder than he that is gentle and lowly. Than the one who calls upon us to cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. Here in verse 15, of course, in Mark's usual brevity, we see the terrible scourging of Jesus. Now, as we mentioned at the outset, this event truly could be a message on its own. There are mounds of teaching and application that arise from the Roman whipping of Jesus. Now understand at this point that even though it says Pilate has handed over Jesus to be crucified, John's gospel shows us, and we're going to dive much further into this next week, but Pilate still has a possible ace up his sleeve. Is it possible that seeing a whipped, bloody, beaten, humiliated, emaciated Jesus brought back before the crowd might just satiate their bloodlust? And Jesus might yet be freed. That's Pilate's secret hope this, at this point. We don't know this, but we will later. Now understand that a Roman scourging was a horrific event. It was often done to those who were sentenced to crucifixion because it hastened their death. In fact, it was not uncommon at all for them to never even make it to the cross because they died from the scourging. When the flagellation would occur at a post, 
in the ground. And the man would have his hands tied high above his head. While most Hollywood depictions show them standing on the ground, they were, they were actually suspended with their feet off the ground so that their skin was pulled tight. While Jewish law limited the number of lashes to 40 to prevent death, Roman law had no such limitation. In fact, they would often whip until the soldier was were simply exhausted or the centurion told him to stop. There would have been more than one soldier carrying this out on Jesus, usually one on each side, and they would alternate strokes. Now, the Roman flagellum was designed to quickly remove flesh from the body. The wooden handle would be fashioned with about three leather straps, tied with knots going all the way down. And inside each of those knots, they would tie in a bone shard or a heavy piece of zinc or iron or indented bronze. At the very end would be small metal balls. And oftentimes the flagrum would even contain a hook at the end that they called the scorpion. Now the details are more that I can give with young ears. But Jesus' inner organs would have been visible. The blood loss would be severe. Jesus would be so weakened he could not even carry his own cross to Golgotha. How many times have we looked to our banner right here, guys, for the gospel of Mark? Seeing Mark's theme, the suffering servant. 700 years before wicked men tore into the flesh of our innocent and sinless Savior, Isaiah would declare its coming and point out our suffering servant that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Healed, restored, made new. Come now, Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah. Let us settle the matter. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Oh, pastor, <laughs> you have no idea how red my sins are. Deep red, deep red, I assure you. They are no deeper red than the blood that is flowing down the back of Christ. The depth of the problem our sin determines the extent of the solution. Jesus' stripes, his wounds, they are sufficient for you. They are greater than your sin. Though Jesus' physical sufferings have just begun, there is humiliation and agony coming that we can hardly grasp. Through his wounds, through his stripes, a sacrifice is being made. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, Scripture tells us. Beloved, as the first stroke of the whip fell, the Lamb of God has begun to bleed. And we look to that with painful expectation that not a drop will be wasted upon the ground. The Lamb will receive the reward for His suffering. 
Not one will be lost that the Father's given to him. Yet we are reminded that it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't the Roman soldiers who were responsible for the scourging that we beheld or this crucifixion that we're marching toward. Scripture says that it's our sin that placed him there and that it pleased the Father to do it. Even as our mind's eye are filled with the agony of Passion Week, we're reminded this is God's story. Jesus is not being swept away by the blind wrath of a mob, by the wickedness of men or the politics of Rome. This is God's story, God's plan. God is the centerpiece and the victor. We have redeemed all over this church this morning. People who are no longer what they once were. People who have new hearts and new minds testify to that. And through our suffering servant, through his stripes, through his wounds, through his death and his resurrection, we've been given new life. And that's the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed see here the glory of the gospel. Lord, as we behold the beginnings of the agony of Passion Week, Lord, while our hearts are rent in two, Lord, they are filled again. Pain is replaced with joy and thankfulness, gratefulness, what you endured on our behalf that we can scarcely imagine as difficult to even talk about. Lord, I ask that as over these next few weeks, as we are truly in the throes of your suffering, Lord, these are hard texts. These are difficult not only for the preacher, but Lord, for the congregation. Lord, I ask that you would hearten them. I ask that you would buttress them, that you would stand behind them, that you would hold them up, Lord, that they may be able to grasp it with joy. Even as we mourn the consequence of sin, Lord, that we are joyful warriors. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would cause this message to go down deep. We ask that it would find root in good soil. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.